0: Uh, but we're going to be continuing uh, our series this morning in Matthew's Gospel and the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and we've been doing that by taking kind of an in-depth look at each of the Beatitudes. Uh, two weeks ago, if you remember, we tackled the first one from chapter three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and we talked about the fact that uh, you know this wasn't a benefit particularly reserved for folks with empty wallets or hungry stomachs necessarily, but rather the state of uh, being in a believer who understands his or her poverty in spirit in comparison to the holiness of God, Uh, and how that realization was the starting link that all of the other Beatitudes kind of suspend from. Uh, Last week, if you remember, we looked at the second Beatitude from Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, which is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we reflected on the kind of healthy reflex of mourning over the fallen state of this world, which ultimately points us to Jesus, uh, the suffering servant who didn't just grieve uh, over our sins, but conquered them by his dying and rising from the grave in the glory of his resurrection. And that brings us today to Beatitude number three, which as I, I said in the bulletin, if you read that little section of the bulletin this week, I was probably Of all the Beatitudes, probably the most misunderstood, but we'll we'll get to that. Uh, Just as another side note, if you remember, too, I've been telling you that I want to cover all eight of them individually. So our text for this morning, if you have your Bibles in front of you, uh, is the same text for the next five weeks. uh, With the exception, I'm just going to read up through the one we'll be covering for that particular day. So again, we, we turn to Matthew chapter five. And again right at the beginning, but this time, five verses. So Matthew chapter 5, and listen for the voice of the Spirit. And seeing the crowds, of course, he meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you today confessing that we aren't humble and meek and teachable. Uh, We come confessing, Lord, that our natural bent is to think that we know it all when uh, all we know sometimes is so very little. Uh, But come now, Lord, by your Holy Spirit and grant us a willing heart, not only to hear and to see, but to lovingly desire. All that you've designed to teach us in these next few minutes, and we ask it for the sake of Christ, our Lord, Amen. Hey, have any of you guys um, ever seen the the Lipizzan stallions down in Myakka City? Who's seen those? Okay, all right, a few, a few folks. Um, I, I've never seen them personally. I just read about them, uh, but I guess during the winter months, these these incredible horses stay on a ranch near Sarasota, uh, and they perform shows at the the horse. Uh, fairgrounds there for the public. Uh, Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about or anything about the breed, uh, the Lipizzaners originated about 400 years ago or so in Central Europe uh, as part of an effort to selectively breed fast and sturdy horses for mounted combat. Uh, And we're eventually trained in a bunch of like really complex maneuvers, not only to defend their rider against oncoming foot soldiers, but to actually provide offensive support and and in one particular move if you've ever seen them operate uh, one move they do called the capriolet the horse can actually make a vertical leap in the air pulling it its its four legs toward its chest and and kicking simultaneously back with its hind legs with enough force to inflict severe if not fatal damage on an enemy soldier Uh, a a move that uh, that trainers say requires a high degree of courage uh, control and balance on behalf of the horse and must be able to be accomplished at the slightest direction of its rider. And in case you start to wonder why I'm telling you all that about these war horses, uh, it's because they are the perfect picture of the word meekness that we get today from our Beatitude. Not what you expected, right? Because, you know, when we think of the word meek, it's not the first adjective that necessarily springs to mind when you think of war horses, uh, especially because the word meek sounds a whole lot like weak. Uh, reminds you of timid, but a well-trained lip is on a stallion is anything but meek and timid and would not hesitate to charge into battle under the control of its master uh, or to maneuver according to its commands because a you know a meek horse, if you guys have ever had horses, is one that's kept its strength but has had it harnessed under the authority of the one who tamed it uh, and that's actually what the Greek word for meek in the New Testament in our text today means it literally means. Strength under control. The idea even slipped into old English literature that would often speak of, uh, of meeking a horse. And so keeping it strong and powerful, yet under control and willing to submit. Uh, Aristotle actually used that same word to describe the virtue uh, of a man's character in between two extremes. And one commentator on his writing put it like this. He said, if, if recklessness were on one end, and cowardice on the other, meekness might be characterized as steady courage. I like that. So if recklessness are on one end, cowardice on the other, meekness would be described as steady courage. And he continues in this quote, for example, a meek person doesn't shy away from taking a stand. Rather, the stand is taken at the right time, with the right people, and in the right way as he or she submits to or constrains their power to the greatest effect. And so I guess taking all of those ideas and overlaying them with a Christian perspective, I guess we would say that the meekness that Christ is calling for in our beatitude today is not just power under control, but it would be our power under God's control, right? So for the Christian, meekness is about surrendering everything to God and being completely at his disposal and doing it, brothers and sisters, because God says he will not abide with those who are proud and arrogant. Zephaniah chapter three, beginning in verse 11, God declares, I will remove everyone who is proud and arrogant, and you will never again rebel against me, but I will leave there a humble and lowly people who will come to me for help. The apostle James that we've been studying in Sunday school uh, said God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But probably the best scripture to begin to delve a little deeper into the meaning of Jesus' words today would actually be with Psalm 37. Uh, because it is almost certain that today's beatitude on behalf of the Lord is a quotation from Psalm 37 or an allusion to it. Listen to how similar it sounds. Psalm 37, says, But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And, and while you while you got your finger open in that psalm, if you have your Bible open, Uh, We give an even clearer picture of the idea of those that are living in Christian meekness. If you back up just a couple of verses from there, uh, in Psalm 37, uh, beginning in verse 5, counsels us to commit our way to the Lord, to trust in Him, and He will act. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. To be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. And so as we kind of try to refine this portrait of what it looks like to be meek, the first thing we notice in all of this is, number one, that meek people trust in God. Biblical meekness is rooted in the deep confidence that God is for you and he's not against you and that for believers that God will vindicate us when others oppose us falsely and unfairly. It's why Isaiah 54, 17 declares, no weapon that's formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Have you, uh, you ever been falsely accused of something? Ever been the subject of gossip? had lies spread about you when you knew deep in your heart that you were innocent? Well, if you have, then you know it is incredibly painful to have your integrity brought into question, right? to have your reputation slandered. But for the truly meek, God has promised to protect us. One commentator put it like this. He said, the waves of slander may rock us and toss us about, but he is our protection. He will not... Let them drown us as long as we cling to him for our protection, we will not be moved. Piggybacking right on that idea is the idea number two that the meek commit their way to God, as we read in Psalm 37 5. Uh, and the Hebrew word in that section for commit here literally means to roll something away. Like, think about it like, you know, if you take a, a ball and you, you give it a roll, you give it a toss down a steep cliff, you're committed to it, right? It's gone. Uh, and in the same way the bible is telling us that meek people just roll with it. Right? We've discovered that God is trustworthy and so we can roll our problems, our our lives, our our businesses, our relationships, uh, our health, our fears and and our frustrations, we just roll them over the cliff and down into God's lap and say God, you got this. Okay? Truly meek people admit that they are insufficient to cope with the complexities and pressures and obstacles of life by themselves, and they trust that God is not only able, but willing to sustain them. Number three, the truly meek are quiet before God and wait for him. And so if you kind of think of this as building up ideas or links in a chain of these previous two thoughts, first, you know, the the meek discover God can be trusted, then they commit their way to him, and then now thirdly, as I said, the meek wait quietly, expectantly, and patiently for the work of God in their lives. Doesn't mean they become lazy or complacent, but just that they have kind of a steady calm that comes from knowing that God is omnipotent and sovereign. So then rather than running around pulling your hair out all the time, you see what happens if you do that, right? And panicking every minute, they develop a calm stability about their lives, even in the midst of chaos, And so, fourthly, they don't worry needlessly over the wicked. (laughs) That's why we read, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in the way, over the man who carries out evil devices. One commentator on this said, the wicked may prosper in this world, but perhaps we've forgotten that their fortune will only endure for a short time. We, on the other hand, will inherit the earth. I like the way that sounds. You know, some of you might have been surprised that Jesus promised the earth to the meek and not heaven. What I want you to see is that what the Bible says about the kingdom of God coming to earth and the amazing restoration that God has planned in it should get us excited. Because, brothers and sisters, if you're spiritually reborn, you are going to, in the words of Jesus' beatitude and in the words of Psalm 37, you are going to inherit the land, to inherit this glorious new creation that the Father has had in mind for his elect from eternity past. That's why Romans chapter 8 tells us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And there's so much more that we could be said about those promises that are given to us about our eternal future in God's new creation. But I just have a super short time left, so I want to leave you just a couple bullet points. The first of which is that our future existence will be very real. Don't lose sight of that. The new heaven and the earth are not going to be some kind of ethereal existence, but rather a place where all that was ruined in the old heaven and the old earth will be repaired and beautified in the new, including us. Because think about it, why would God take all the trouble to create a new earth if there wasn't going to be anybody here to live on it? Why would we be given new resurrected bodies if we weren't going to live in a material universe? But the Bible is clear that the day will come when that old paradise that God intended for us to be part of, the one like where he placed Adam and Eve, will be restored. And I don't know about you, uh, but I can hardly wait. And apparently, according to the Apostle Paul, the universe itself can barely wait. We covered this last week, just touched on it. But continuing in Romans 8, verse 19, we're told, for all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Which brings me to my second little bullet point. Our inheritance in Christ uh, is imperishable. It's not subject to decay. In contrast, everything else we see around us. You know, you don't have to look very far uh, to realize that everything in this world is in the process of decaying. Right? and rusting and falling apart. Right? Our houses, our, our cars, even our own bodies, but our inheritance in Christ is unfading. And I know that's kind of a, a tough concept for us as creatures of this world because it's hard to imagine colors that never fade. It's hard to imagine excitements that don't diminish. It's hard to imagine the value of something that never depreciates because this old world is fading But brothers and sisters, our inheritance of this old world uh, is going to be recreated into something new. And its glorious intensity is never going to diminish because what we have in Christ is kept by him for us and no one can steal it from us. That's why our Lord himself said in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and, and what? No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And when we understand that and the future that awaits us, we're better able to meekly endure whatever comes our way in this life. And we can give God praise even during trials because we have a guarantee that we will receive all that God has promised. Since we know, as the Bible says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor... Nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Jesus, where our our endless inheritance and our eternal security, brothers and sisters, are not based on anything inherent in us, but on God's love for those whom He's redeemed. Redeemed not with anything perishable, but purchased with the precious sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, initiated by the will of the Father and enacted in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And just finally, kind of as a closing point, we can't afford to miss this. We have to ask the question, how is it that you get an inheritance? How is it that we meek can inherit anything, much less the earth? Well, you get an inheritance by somebody having to die. No inheritance without a death. And it was the meekness of Christ that took him to the cross, brothers and sisters, for us. And in allowing that death to happen to him, he gave us the very definition of meekness as power in restraint, right? If you recall, we talked at length before about Christ's act of obedience. You know, we lived out his life for us and all of his righteousness so that could be credited to our account. Well, his meekness in death is the flip side of that. One theologian put it like this. He said, Christ's passive obedience consisted not so much in what he did, but in what he willingly suffered And endured. For instance, famously in the Garden of Gethsemane, contemplating his impending crucifixion, Jesus prayed, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And he says, In this, we see the Lord Jesus meekly submitting to the will of God, a passive obedience that reached his culmination at Calvary. This is Jesus' meekness in passive obedience as he's being led to the cross. Because remember, Jesus never argued or demanded that people understand him. He didn't take advantage of his power as the son of God. He didn't call down that legion of angels to rescue him or defeat his enemies. But instead, our savior humbled himself and he even prayed for the very people who arrested him and put him to death. That's meekness. That's power in restraint. Scottish theologian, uh, James Stewart, put it like this in describing the character of our Lord. And I love this quote, I've shared it with you before. Uh, He said, Jesus was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. And yet he spoke of coming in the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. And yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that children loved to play with him and little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, and yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love, and yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, and yet masterfully he strode into the temple and the hucksters and the money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at last himself he did not save. Stuart closes the quote by saying there's nothing in history, like the union of contrasts that confront us in the gospel. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. The divine personality of a Savior that lived out the full measure, the very definition of the Beatitudes he gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, and in doing so left us an example to follow. Because remember, brothers and sisters, he preached those for our benefit, not his. So how do we do that? How do we begin to live out the message of the Sermon on the Mount? How do we begin to approach that blessedness and learn the secret of true happiness? Where does that come from? Well, the very, very short answer is it comes from living a life pleasing to God. And how do we do that? Thankfully, that's not a mystery. In John 14, 15, Jesus tells us, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So we do it by staying in his word. We do it by obeying him both actively and passively in whatever way he calls us to do. We do it by loving what he loves and shunning what he hates. And we do it by trusting him with a meek and lowly heart, not in passivity or cowardice, but as that old hymn goes, living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please him in all that I do. And praying as a, another old Scottish preacher used to pray, Lord, make me as obedient as is possible for a saved sinner to be. And I think that's a good prayer. Knowing that we won't ever be perfect this side of heaven, but meekly, quietly trusting the Holy Spirit to push us further and further down the road to sanctification as we await Christ's return. And by, as the Bible commands us, having this mind among us, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though it was in the form of God, did not account in quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. about that amen let's pray god our father we ask you today to give us meek and humble hearts lord to yield to your word at all times bridle us lord to follow your lead and lead us to long for what is right command us this week lord as you will and use us in the growth of your kingdom for the glory of your son come now lord we ask and save those who you are calling to yourself and give us Lord, a holy boldness to proclaim your gospel this week in jesus name Amen. And brothers and sisters, would you please stand for the Apostles' Creed and for our closing hymn. But let's confess together publicly what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.